Welcome to Rise of the Rule Lords. My name is Pete, and I will be your odious and opulent rule lord. If there's one thing that you should know about me, it's that I love third-party games coming out for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Whether it's the Botanical Bestiary or the Lost Lights campaign setting, I'm going to back it. Which is why I'm super excited that uh, I have two of the creators for the motherload of third-party uh, games coming out for 2nd Edition that is the Battle Zoo Bestiary. The Kickstarter is starting on August 31st. Uh, so with me today are Stephen Glicker and Mark Seifter. Stephen Glicker runs the Roll for Combat podcast, an official licensed partner with Paizo. The Roll for Combat podcast features multiple actual play podcasts, including the full playthrough of the Starfinder Dead Suns Adventure Path and the Fall of Plaguestone Pathfinder Adventure. Currently, they're playing through the Pathfinder Extinction Curse Adventure Path and the Agents of Edge Watch Adventure Path. You can find them at RollForCombat.com. Steven, how are you? What are your pronouns? What's your claim to fame? And what are you drinking today? I am drinking Diet Coke. That's all I drink. People who know me well know that I live on Diet Coke. It's one of my main food groups. My pronouns are he, him. And claim to fame, I have so many. I'll give you one that's not the infamous claim to fame. I'll just give the the non-infamous claim to fame. That would just be GM and running Roll for Combat for the last four years. That has taken up a lot of my time. And I've been able to meet a lot of fun, interesting people, as well as work with the wonderful people at Paizo on many occasions. So that is my latest claim to fame, plus Battle Zoo Beast and running RPG Superstar. Our next guest is Mark Seifter. Mark has been the design lead on over 100 game titles and worked on even more. Some of his credits as primary design lead include Pathfinder 2nd Edition Game Mastery Guide and the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Advanced Player's Guide, and he was one of the four leads on the creation of Pathfinder 2nd Edition. You can find Mark on Twitter at Mark Seifter and check out his Twitch stream, Arcane Mark, with Paizo's Digital Adventures Development Manager, Linda Zias Palmer, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Pacific and Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, the link will be in the description. Mark, how are you doing? Uh, what are your pronouns? What's your claim to fame? And what are you drinking today? I am doing pretty well. My pronouns are he, him. My claim to fame, I guess, other than being uh, Paizo's design manager and is like the creation of second edition Pathfinder, I guess. Like, that's probably the most famous thing that I have worked on. And right now, I'm not drinking anything because I'm on a podcast, but I find it really interesting that Steven is so obsessed with Diet Coke, <laughs> he could fit in with like all of the rest of my immediate family except me. They are obsessed with Diet Coke, like, to the point that I bought my brother a Diet Coke, like, a doormat that was, like, come back with Diet Coke for his front door, and he put it out in front of his front door. That sounds like something I would have. For my, uh, for my birthday, I went into the office, and in my, in my office, my workers at the time bought so much Diet Coke that it filled every crevice of my office, and <laughs> it's nice because it lasted me about about a month or so. Awesome. Well, most recently, you guys ran the RPG Superstar Contest, where people were tasked to create the most exciting Pathfinder monster possible. 
Uh, after multiple rounds of judging, the best 101 monsters were selected, and the winners are now appearing in the upcoming BattleZoo Bestiary hardcover book. In addition to the BattleZoo Bestiary, you are also releasing a new monster part system where players can craft their gear and magic items from monster parts, the monster mage and vestige hunter archetypes, which allow you to integrate monster spells and special abilities directly into your character, the Dragon Ancestries book, which allows player to play as one of 40 different dragon types, and the treasure of Indigo Isles Adventure Path, a pirate adventure best described as Guardians of the Galaxy, only with pirates and dragons. So those are all very exciting reasons to be excited for this book, but uh, tell me more. Why should we be excited for this? Why should we be excited? Because it's everything people want and can use in Pathfinder. That is actually... Let me start over with that. So yeah, the main reason that we did Monsters is that when we started up the RPG Superstar Contest again, I was talking a lot with Paizo, and I talked a lot with Eric Mona, who everyone knows is the publisher for Paizo, as well as Owen Casey Stevens, who ran RPG Superstar for Paizo for many years, and we talked a lot about what would be the most useful item for people both to make and use in their games, because if you remember in the past, you would you know, create an adventure if you want. And throughout the many rounds, you'd have to make items or you'd have to create a magic item or create an ancestry. There was, you know, a lot of different sessions or there was a lot of different paths that you had to take throughout the contest, but we just did one path and that was create a monster because monsters can use, monsters are used by everyone. Monsters are used by the GM. They're used by the PCs. They are the heart and soul of role-playing games. If you think about it, yes, characters make the heart of the game and you obviously need the players to be the characters, but the GM's heart is the monsters because they have to fight the the characters with something (laughs) and that's usually the monsters. So they are a huge part of the game and they usually don't get the credit they deserve. If you think about it, yeah, they get bestiaries, but you don't see a lot of systems coming out on how to make monsters deadlier. You know, every so often you do. I mean, sure, there's lots of players' handbooks and things like that, but we figured, you know, you got to show the monsters a little bit of love. So we went the other way, and we came out with, you know, both the bestiary, which everyone can use, you know, whether you're a player or a GM, and then the monster part system, which is, let's take those monsters and turn them into cool things, which you've seen around for a long time. Obviously, Monster Hunter does it, and Kingdom Death, Kingdom Kingdom Monster Death does it. There's lots of systems out there, but none of them have really done it in role playing. Definitely not to this extent. Every so often you might kill a specific monster and get a specific weapon, but Mark and I designed a system where you could make anything out of any monster you kill. It'll work with any system. It'll work with your homebrew stuff. You can make guns out of these monster parts, even though Guns and Gears isn't out yet, it'll just work. And I can only claim with coming up with the concept, Mark is the one who came up with the guts behind the system. But that is why we're coming out with the Beastiary. Amazing. So uh, 
I put it on Twitter, but uh, this whole podcast is now going to be you telling me every single individual monster that's going to be in this bestiary. So, well, that'll make it that'll make it easy. It's actually a lot easier than you think. If you go to rbgsuperstar.com, you can see all the winners. And all the winners for all the monsters are public. So there, we got you. No, they actually are up there, but those are the pre-edited versions of the monsters. Those are the original monsters. Now, there's nothing wrong with those, but the ones in the book were gone through with a fine-tooth comb by Patrick Rennie, and he made sure that you know every single monster had the spit and shine that a Paizo monster would have. I also went through them as well. And then we're putting them in the book. So you can actually see the difference once the book is out between the official winners and then the cleaned up, if you will, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, versions of the monsters. There's really just a lot, I think, that makes this project particularly good for the contestant and for someone trying to get into RPGs, even if you didn't participate this time. That's because you can go look right now at the submitted winners that were voted for by judges and then the fans but when you have the book you can compare contrasts through patrick's development pass and you can see well what did patrick and steven change what was still yet to be done you can when you do a compare contrast you can find out for yourself oh okay so that's what took something that already was Almost there and won a contest, but put it into a state that was um, even closer to publication. And that's just one of the features that it it has in this section, which uh, I like talking about the cool features of this section because thinking of it from the perspective of when I was trying to get into the industry, given that um, I didn't actually work on the monster section at all. I worked on the monster part section at the end. I can be a little more unbiased about it, I guess. And I really like that the name of each freelancer who um, wrote, or contestant, uh, each RPG superstar who wrote a section is just right up there under the monster. So you can see, if you were in this contest and you were one of the 101 winners, you can just see your name right there on the page with the fully developed by Patrick Rini, who does monsters a lot in Back Matter for Adventure Paths for Paizo monster that's on there. So this is a super unique concept. This isn't just uh, another bestiary of monsters from folklore or were part of, you know, uh, the general TTRPG generic monster lineup. These are monsters created entirely by the public, people who might not even have design experience. Is that what uh, makes them so unique to you guys? 100%. Uh, It's created by... Fans who wanted to get in, and you know, like with RPG Superstar, when Paizo was running it, I was a judge one of the years, and we got a lot of submissions, right? But only one person got to write an adventure at the end. But with this one, 101 people, Stephen paid them for their entry as if they were freelancer for this book, and then published it. And that's that's really, to me, as far as I know, is extremely unique in terms of uh, tabletop role-playing for someone to put enough effort and resources into helping uh, prospective new game designers by, you know, paying to get the words, paying to have someone from Paizo who really knows the stuff, Patrick Rini, go through and do development pass on the monsters. That's just a, a really cool product that no one's ever really done. 
there were a couple different levels of of winner entries on here from uh, copper to the grand prize. What made a copper monster a copper monster compared to a gold or grand prize monster? And what were the signs that something needed tweaking? So the difference between copper and grand prize usually had to do with formatting and usually just how the monster was written. Almost always that was the difference in the end. The concept of the monsters, all the monsters had good concepts because obviously there was way more than 101 monsters that were submitted into the contest and we went through all of them. So these were the top monsters that made it. And then after the professional judges went through and picked out 101, then it went through public voting. And then the public voting is where it got sorted between the top and the bottom tiers. The funny thing is, is that Almost always, I'd say about 90% of the monsters ended up kind of in the same place. For example, the grand prize winner was the grand prize winner for both rounds. There was no contest, the shell spitter. That won both for the public as well as the grand prize, which was fascinating, as well as the platinum and the gold. Um, towards the silver and copper, it was a little bit more um, you know, different in terms of the disparity between some of the voting. But again, that mostly just had to do with knowledge of rules, balance, putting in like too many attacks sometimes, how you put in the attack wording was sometimes incorrect. You can definitely tell like, you know, the top monsters, you would look at it and you can think, okay, that's a stat block from Paizo. It was that level of quality. And then, you know, the lower level ones, they were good monsters, but they had to be cleaned up. And whether it was too many abilities or too many attacks, things like that. And that that was about it. That really was the main difference between the top tier and the lower tier. But that is very important because as an editor, you want to make sure that you get something that's as close to final as possible because, you know, you're not going to keep getting work over and over again if editors have to constantly clean up your work or you're just not going to get a lot of monsters. So, you know, this is both a learning experience, like we were saying before, because you can see how it was changed from before and after, as well as an understanding of why it was changed and why, you know, and what was actually done with each monster. So that really was it. That that was the main difference between the top and bottom tiers. So not necessarily losers, but just things needed some fixing somewhere near publishing and they're all quality, it sounds like. Yeah. In fact, the Adventure Path is centered around the Gamayan, and the Gamayan are a copper winner. And they are getting, in a weird way, they kind of won the grand prize because <laughs> although they won copper, we're doing so much around them. They're getting their own ancestry, the whole venture paths around them. I spoke to the author, and they felt like they won the grand prize because they're getting almost more than the grand prize winner got the shell spitter. So, you know, again, it, it, it really had nothing to do, but they had a very cool story they're fun. They're powered people. They're basically, you know, they're powered people and they're funny. And we just had a lot we can do with them. And in fact, they're, they're like more interesting as an ancestry than a monster. That's one of those like, oh, and there's a couple of those in here where they're, they're good as monsters, but they're more interesting as ancestries. Mm -hmm. And that's fine too. You know, that, that there's definitely like the shell spitters. They're monsters. There's these like rock creatures that just eat you and generate gems in their, in their tummies. Those are not playable. You, you can't play Shell Spitter. There's no way you could do it. But <laughs> there's a lot of humanoids in here that are 
you know, decent or okay monsters, but they're way more interesting as NPCs. Yeah. And, that, you know, that just happens. Yeah. So I understand that a lot of Paizo staff were heavily involved in this, Mark being one of them. So why is this a third-party product and not an official Paizo? Well, the reason that this product is um, not a first-party Paizo product is because Paizo didn't publish it. And so Paizo um, does not have a non-compete for staffers like some other tabletop role-playing companies do. And what that means is that Paizo staffers are free to engage in the rich uh, third-party culture around tabletop RPGs. And in this case, uh, Steven specifically hired like pretty much all Paizo staffers to do a lot of the tasks on the, on the project. But other than that, and the fact that he licensed RPG Superstar from Paizo, which like kind of in a video game might make this a second party product. I'm not really sure the definitions, but other than that, it's just like any other third party product that is, that has Paizo staffers on it. Like, you know, some mm-hmm. Paizo staffers have self published ancestries that they put out for third party for example like i know um the pinol uh, and the yeah but the pinol from logan yeah absolutely even though this is a third party product and i know some people might be a little wary of getting not seeing the paizo logo on it but this is essentially going to be a paizo quality product then i would like to think so (laughs) the uh yeah every single person who has worked on this except for the original authors of the monsters and myself is from Paizo. We have Mark, obviously. We have Patrick Rennie. And then for the Adventure Path that is coming out, we have Patrick Rennie, who's writing the first book. Ron Lundin's writing the second book. And Linda Zayas Palmer's writing the third book. And then the Dragon Ancestry's Guide that's coming out, Mark's writing that one. So we have, you know, pretty much all Paizo staffers working on this. And then the art itself, we have... Many of the artists have worked with Paizo and have published work with them in the past. I also have my own group of artists that I think are just as good, if not in some ways better than some of the Paizo art. And we we definitely spend a lot on art. And that is a big difference, I would say, between some third-party products and others. I think a lot of third-party products always have excellent content and it's totally understandable. Art is really expensive. Mm-hmm. So people will not spend or they will, you know, get less art or they'll do black and white art. And I get it. That's fine. I'm not I'm not dissing it in any way. But, you know, for my work and even for the podcast, we spend a lot of money on art and it is a huge part of the budget. And um, yeah, we just wanted to make sure that people really felt comfortable with this and that they felt like, you know, they were getting a quality product. Awesome. So we've talked a little bit about uh, the monsters. We know that we can see all of them, but what are your favorites that are out right now? So every person asks me this, <laughs> and I always change the answer because it's the day of the week you get me. <laughs> Mark, what's your favorite? Well, I look one up. Okay, well, I feel like Gamayun are my favorite because I wrote a like super deluxe-length ancestry on them, and I really delve deep into their cultural underpinnings of their of their backstory. So Gambayun are the parrot people, but they're not just like, oh, well, they're parrots and that's it. They have this really 
tragic backstory where they worshipped a goddess of um, beauty and art, but then demons like nearly corrupted them to the point where Gabayan might have been just added as a new type of demon in the abyss. But it didn't quite get there, and they got redeemed at the last minute, but not all the way back. And so there's that just gave me this tableau to play with, and I I decided what some of the cultural divides that might be uh, formed by that past might be, and I I wrote some cool feats and uh, heritages to back that up too, and so it's definitely Gamayun because of the fact that that I've now written so much about them that I've gotten to know them very well. So as I said, every single time I do one of these, I come up with a different answer. So now I'm going to do a completely different one, and that is the Prismatic Ooze, Ooh. which is a high-level creature. I haven't spoken about this one. This one's a CR-17 creature, and they're rare, they're large, they're mindless. I love oozes. Oozes are absolutely my favorite. And this one, this one has a lot of cool abilities. They basically eat magic. That is what they oh. do. And when you create or run a new, should I say, is they have different vulnerabilities, and it depends on the colors of the vulnerabilities. So, for example, when they attack, you roll a 1d8, and depending on the d8, you either have like a red attack, which is fire, or an orange attack, which is acid, yellow is electricity, green is So poison, the same d8 from blue. prismatic spray and prismatic wall? Yeah, yeah, it's basically like prismatic spray in ooze form. So they get flushed to stone, warp mine, slowed, or two colors Ooh. at once. So there's so there's actually seven colors, and then eight is just the wild card. But it also works the reverse way, where they're also vulnerable depending on the colors as well. So yeah, it's it's just a it's a messed up <laughs> ooze because it's like every time it works and does something, it, you know, you no one knows, no one knows what's going to happen, including the GM. So it's just uh, I like I like random, I like randomness in my games. I know everyone else hates it, especially my <laughs> players, but oh boy, I like it. So you got an ooze that no one knows what's gonna what it's gonna do, how it's gonna attack, and what it's even vulnerable to every time you got to. So another major part of this book or part of the Battle Zoo Bestiary line, is going to be this monster part system. So tell us how that works. I'm especially someone who doesn't know anything about crafting because I'm always on the GM side and never have to do it. So how does it differ from the current uh, crafting and magic item rules that already exist with things like runes? Uh, I can feel that one. As a GM, you've probably at least like handed out treasure with runic items to yep. to players and seen them putting runes and stuff on their weapons and armor. Yep. The main difference with when you're crafting with monster parts is that it sort of takes the players and inserts their agency and storytelling into the narrative of what the item will be. That is sort of, if, if we just have to boil it down, they, they and the monsters they're fighting become part of the story. So now it's not just that random encounter. It's a monster they're going to remember because it gave them a particular part that they could use to upgrade their items in a special way. Ah, like so even, like a dragon bone armor or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So like even I now know that, that Steven's group fought against a mimic and a swarm of cockroaches. 
That's not because I was watching uh, his stream, which was Patreon only, but it was because he's talked about the items that they crafted out of that, which were a like a mask of cockroach parts that gave you like multifaceted cockroach light vision to give you a perception bonus that the player just came up with when hmm. Steven said, Hey, what, what are you, how are you, what are you going to make then out of these cockroaches? And, um, then on the other hand, a weapon was, the weapon was a sword. And by the rules, a mimic doesn't have a slashing or piercing attack. So the player could not enhance just the general that basic stats of the weapon and decided to uh, imbue the weapon with special powers from the mimic and made it bane against aberrations uh, because the mimic was an aberration and you need the type of thing that you're making it bane against. Right. Or, or the opposite one or the other. Um, and so even I know that they fought against those two because of the <laughs> story that, 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 you know, the narrative, right. And yeah. If, if Steven just told me, oh, they fought cockroaches and a mimic, I probably wouldn't remember now um, at this point. But I remember just from another interview where he said that based on that. So that's that's what it is fundamentally if I'm trying to sell it to you on a top-level approach. It's that monsters give parts which let you level up your item in a way that the players are guiding a little bit more and therefore um, becoming part of the story. And that because of the fact that, you know, I'm... I'm kind of like a major math guy, even at Paizo, for doing the math, right? And so I I crunched all of the numbers and did the math for you in Battle Zoo Best Theory so that you don't really have to do very much math in order to figure out what to give the players. Mm. when. Um, so not only did I recreate the treasure by level tables for three different permutations of how you might want to give out monster parts, but I created a quick and dirty... Um, treasure by monster that isn't going to be exactly right for the treasure by level it's going to be pretty close and you can mm-hmm. check at the end of the level and make sure but just if you just want to be like oh it was a level five monster here's how much to give and that covers you on three particular cases one of which is the players are just like we want to do everything with monster parts get rid of everything else it's all with parts <laughs> use That's every part the, yeah use use only parts no gold no other items we're just doing monster parts uh that's like the full variant then there's, well, well, mostly you want to use magic items, but, you know, like, this one player wants to use monster parts, maybe, and, or we're in the woods and we don't really have money and, or stores, so let's replace, like, approximately the liquid cash that's suggested in the in the treasure by level with parts mm-hmm. and get a, a few parts, uh, uh, monster part items. And then there's the hybrid, which is the coolest, but it, it may, it's super easy to use um, either of the first two that I just mentioned in a published adventure, because you can just take everything out and put in monster parts or take only the, when it says GP out and put in monster parts. But with the hybrid, you have to actually make a decision about what things to remove because you're removing about half. It is the coolest because it lets you have a real mix and match of everything from all, all the systems together in a free for all. I like it the most, but I also like both of the others and I fully supported not only those three main variants, but a bunch of sidebars. There's like, well, what if I'm doing automatic bonus progression? Well, you're covered. What if I have relics? Well, you're covered too. And there's just a bunch of what ifs about um, different possibilities. It's sort of, um, I sort of like lay bare some of the design like decisions that are made in the system and talk about them, frankly, so that 
the GM and players reading it as a group can make decisions about how to best use the system to fit exactly what you want to do with it in your game rather than just like one view of what I decided the system was. So if I'm running an adventure path like Age of Ashes or using the official Paizo Best Series, will this subsystem work with those or does this system exclusively work with uh, BattleZoo Bestiary Monsters. 100% works with um, whatever. Even it's future-proofed. So even if a new product comes out with new monsters, it will automatically work with those. Uh, if a new product comes out, Steven alluded, uh, Guns and Gears with new items, it's future-proofed. It will work with those. Uh, one of the touchstones for crafting out of monster parts that a lot of people mention, and even when Steven like, first came to me, he mentioned to me... Um, thinking that we might do something more in that vein is Monster Hunter, where you need a very specific monster to get very specific parts. But I went a slightly different route mm -hmm. uh, and explained it to Steven. He was like, oh yeah, that's a really good idea. And that's what we got. And that is more like what I described before, where there are very loose restrictions on what can be crafted that just were within a, like, oh, well, if it has any slashing or piercing, which many monsters do, you could use it to make a sword because that has slashing and piercing damage. Just very, very easy to fulfill requirements mm -hmm. that all monsters would ha have would meet in some way so that you would be able to use the parts from any monster in the future rather than being like, well, you need Bahir fangs specifically to make this lightning thing. And if you don't kill a Bahir, you cannot make it or something like that. So how do the special abilities of monsters factor into the crafting? So the monster's special abilities when it comes to the monster crafting system might be necessary depending on what you're trying to make. So if you're trying to refine an item, and that means sort of just building a base item out of monster parts and then upgrading its, its raw statistics, kind of like those fundamental runes your players are putting mm -hmm. on their weapons, like plus to hit or extra damage dice then you just need a creature that for a weapon has, for example, the same damage type as the weapon deals, any of the damage types that it might deal. But when you're um, imbuing a special property into an item, and that's something you can do here with any kind of item, not just weapons and armor, uh, then you're going to need a monster with a special ability that matches uh, the genre of what you're imbuing. So, for example, if you're imbuing fire... The monster needs to either have the fire trait or have at least one fire special ability or fire spell. Uh, so you can make a, a sword out of a fire method. Yeah. Actually, that's close to the example. The example is um, crafting, uh, reforging a sword out of uh, T-Rex Fang. And then afterwards, using, I think, um, Magma Scorpion or whatever the, whatever the very scorpionish fire elemental is um, to imbue fire into it wow that's really cool so what are the there's four steps to creating an item can you talk about those sure um the first step when you're creating an item and some of these steps are like technically not um creating the item yet but it's sort of the you know the four steps of of using the system is that you go um, fight monsters. And when I say fight monsters, I don't necessarily mean that you're necessarily going to murder monsters. You could choose to defeat monsters in other ways, uh, such as a battle of wits. You could befriend the monster and they maybe will give you a piece of them. And like in stories, when you get an item that is freely given, it has more magic power in it. Similarly, the GM knows what value 
of monster parts you have obtained. And basically, monster parts allow your items to level up like you do, just using um, gold pieces instead of experience points to decide. And so that there's nothing to say that you need a, a carcass of an angel to get 200 gold pieces or however much it is. It could be one feather that is imbued with the true friendship of the angel that gives you the 200 gold pieces, for example. Yeah. But once you, once you've done whatever you're going to do to get the parts, you gather the ingredients. Generally, if the monster is dead, that is going to take some time, uh, not very much. Uh, it's pretty bulky in most cases. Uh, that's intentional. It's designed to encourage the players to decide what they want to do quickly so that you don't wind up with a tracking sheet of all the parts, but instead just know what level your item is. And so there's a lot less tracking. Oh, good. That uh, sounds like a disaster waiting to happen if it was like yeah. that. But it makes sense that it's like... It's a, big and it's bulky you don't want to drag it around and another part of the way to encourage that is that you're assumed to be working on items just throughout your day and by your next daily preparation it's been applied now there's side rules on using the craft skill and taking the extra time if you have downtime because maybe you do but a lot of groups don't have downtime and they're maybe replacing item stores with this and they need you know, the ability to go and like, just like you would have gone to a store and bought your plus one striking sword because you have a hundred gold. Mm -hmm. You need the ability to have the weapon soon in a game with no downtime. So the standard variant is just like during your next daily prep, it's done. Mm. But it, there are, there are variants to put back in the crafting time if you prefer that. Yeah. And, um, so it's, it's all done to encourage lowering tracking, just making it quick and easy to apply. The only thing that you have now on top of what you would have done before is that all of your items have levels now and you're, and you're tracking the, the, the gold value that is kind of like their XP to see when they're going to level up next. Yeah. That's it. Um, so then you, once you've got the parts, you refine the items, you choose which items you choose like that cockroach mask or the aberration bane sword, um, to be how you're going to apply the parts and you, put the XP in, you see if it was enough to level up your item. If so, then you get more powers from it. Raises the DC too when the item level goes up. That's, I know, been an issue for some people that their items are like, this was good, but it's DC. And it's DC was amazing when I first bought it. But now that I'm a few levels higher, the DC is kind of low. Well, mm. as you keep refining the item, it'll, it'll core scale. Attributes will scale. Absolutely. Awesome. And then the fourth step is imbuing. Once an item reaches a certain level, one of the benefits and unlocks is the ability to be imbued with a special property. As long as it is a weapon, armor, shield, skill item, or perception item. Those are the five categories that can be imbued. Other than that, um, if you craft something with the this system, you're just kind of making the base item. But those five have big progressions for refining and imbuing that give multiple benefits along the way. And imbuing is kind of like I said before, with fire, you put some kind of special magic property in there. Weapons and armor can hold three. Uh, other items hold one. And that is also how your skill item can become, for example, an apex item and be imbued with strength uh, as one of the examples of things you can do. That sounds shockingly like the rune system. So it turns out that it is designed to be pretty balanced with the runic system. There are like certain flashpoint levels where like the rune system just literally bought their new rune exactly here. And the rune system is like, aha, 
look at that. I just got my new rune. I've done it for slightly cheaper than you did, and we are doing about the same amount of things. But the monster crafting system has the benefit that it's incremental. Mm-hmm. And so um, you're getting benefit all along the way. It's Your DCs are continually going up. And the rune system is like, oh, well, I can't keep getting incrementally better at this point. That, that was the best I was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I intentionally designed it so that the runic system was like slightly more GP efficient. Like at the exact level, you got the plus one flaming striking flaming sword mm-hmm. but by the time it's a plus two striking flaming sword you both you and the um the crafter person yeah yeah you and the the crafter and the monster part person have paid the same amount and uh are kind of getting pretty much the same benefit in fact the monster parts person can has the opportunity to pay even more and get even more benefit which is um where it really can get interesting well that is a pretty awesome sounding system. I know crafting's not for everyone, but um, I think that's something a lot of people take advantage of. But uh, there's one thing I know that everyone likes, and that's archetypes. So I know that you're adding two of them. Uh, tell me a little bit about those, and uh, why make archetypes and not just brand new classes? Well, I mean, the the simple answer to why make archetypes and not just brand new classes is that the is the word just in there is maybe not like the most appropriate word when asking about archetypes versus classes because a class is a major commitment of design resources compared to an archetype so it's more like why make a class and not just an archetype um in this case archetypes allow you to really add it on to the main part of your character which has a few advantages other than just the f- other than the fact that it's obviously less of a footprint mm-hmm. uh, which is that like uh, when we're looking about the monster mage and the vestige hunter you had it exactly right the monster mage can learn spells uh, from monsters they're sometimes called azure mages because of their the azure color of their magic, but um, they're really monster mages, and vestige hunters learn special abilities. But the thing is, that's great if it's your archetype, but if it's your only thing, it's really can be limiting if you, you could feel frustrated if you didn't find the monsters who had the things that you wanted. Right. Whereas with the archetype, you're not that stymied, because ultimately, at the end of the day, it has the same kind of casting progression as a multi-class wizard archetype, but it has advantages, which is you can learn every spell in the game from all four traditions, even weird things like fey casting spells that are normally on the primal list using, a, um, or sorry, for the cult list using primal magic uh, because of the way they hack uh, primal magic and they're, you know, fey always cheat. Um, you can do that. You can learn it all. You can have heal and magic missile and everything, but you're going to have to do that one monster at a time making tokens uh, uh, based on your encounter with the monsters in order to learn the spells. And that is that can, that part can be campaign dependent. But once mm-hmm. you, once you have like one or two good ones, you're probably fine. You're just happier having them all. If it was your class though, right. You're going to need like a very specific number before you feel like that's fine for your whole class. Mm. Also, also I felt like I could go very robust on the fact that it just literally casts every spell in the game if you find the right monsters, because I knew it was at the slower multi-class progression. But there might be more balance concerns to think about if it was a full casting class that, uh, GM willing, and you go <laughs> hunt the right monsters, you could have every spell in the game at the same speed as Wizard and Clark and Druid and all of those classes. That might require more 
So I think archetype was the right call on here. Yeah. Basically, Steven, Steven just approached me and said, what archetypes could complement this? Mm-hmm. And I, I said, I think it would be archetypes that have their own narrative story reason to go looking for monsters, specific monsters, that does not conflict with the monster part system. So that that way you can use it whether or not you're using the system, mm-hmm. but that it synergizes. Because now, right, um, if you were using all of them, and you have a vestige hunter and a monster mage and you're using monster parts, then you might uh, hear about a legend about a red dragon in the area and, and the, you know, the monster parts crafting barbarian is like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I want to up the fire pro- um, imbued property on my weapon. So the dragon's going to be perfect for that. The vestige hunter is like, well, you know, I, the dragon's got a breath weapon and I wanted to get that from ability from vestige hunter. So that's perfect. Monster mage is like, well, this red dragon knows fireball and, uh, that is a spell I really want. So you, you can kind of all have an opinion about different monsters, mm-hmm. but you don't conflict with each other in any way because the token you need is very specifically not using up any of the GP value of the parts. The vestige, which is sort of an echo of this major fight that happens uh, between the dragon and the vestige hunter, it does not even necessarily use physical parts. It, it does most of the time, and the iconic definitely does, but... Sometimes you just bathe in the blood of the dragon and gain <laughs> weird abilities, and now your body changes. So it sounds like a player might be able to use these archetypes while a GM doesn't necessarily have to uh, go totally into the Monster Maker system. Is that right? They could. The GM could literally not use any of the system other than the archetypes, and they will work perfectly. There's There is no overlap between them other than the fact that they are a strong synergy towards the brain space of thinking about monsters as more than just an adversary to be on the screen for a few moments until it dies, but to also think of them as part of your ongoing story because you're picking something up from that. So sell me on these uh, archetypes. Why would I want to choose the Monster Mage or the Vestige Hunter? Uh, as a GM, why would you want to add it to your game? Or as a player, why why is this your character? As a player, like what what makes me look at uh, the Monster Mage or the Vestige Hunter and be like, yes, I want this. Okay, um, I think that one way I could do that that's a little different than the other interviews because of the fact that we haven't um, we haven't told this to anyone yet is to have um, Zara sell the the monster mage a little bit in her own words because she has a little uh mini very short treatise about monster mages that is at the beginning of that section (gasps) a new guest uh, there we go yes she is the iconic uh monster mage so zara says what is magic you ask is it prayer no don't get sold a bill of goods from some distant god is it study (laughs) you wish Sure, if you study enough and learn the right words, you can tap into bits and pieces of it. But that hardly means that magic is study, or logic, or science. Those things only scratch the surface, leaving much of magic obscured beneath. The power of friendship? Don't make me laugh. No, magic is none of these things, or perhaps it is all of these things, but none of them is sufficient. Magic is also life, and more still, it is everything. It is the very essences of the universe that build up each and everything, from the physical to the metaphysical, and energize them with astral thought and instinctive life force. So should you learn magic by praying, by studying, 
or gods forbid going out there and making lots of new friends no you might learn magic in any of these ways but if you do so you've made a mistake you've accepted a paradigm that has lessened your magic lessened you and restricted you to only some of what magic can offer magic is life magic is all so to learn magic in the truest sense you must take life there's no way around it all creatures that eat live by taking life and that is also how you must learn magic if you wish to learn it all find a creature with magic study it learn it truly know it and kill it collect a token from its remains to remind you always of what you have learned from its uniqueness this will open the pathway to true power and allow you to truly do anything do fey care one whit for the fact that druids don't know how to use their primal magic to cast many illusions or enchantments no they bask in the possibility of the impossible, and they make it happen because the magic is a part of them. And as it becomes a part of you, so too will you be able to perform wonders that the other mages look upon in envy. From On Monsters and Magic, the definitive text on monster magic written by the monster mage Zara. Awesome. So if that didn't sell you on it, <laughs> uh, my short summary of it is, if you want all the spells, then you want to learn them from monsters which is a concept that a lot of people are interested in, then you want to be a monster mage. And for a vestige hunter, it's kind of the martial equivalent. You, you, you eyeing those monsters' special abilities, and you're like, why not me? I want to use those things. I want my, my whip to turn into a snake and like constrict the monster. Why not? Nice. So those are some pretty awesome archetypes. Um, but a lot of people are really eyeing this dragon ancestry. So what can we expect to see from that? Well, so as you may know, most ancestries in Pathfinder, you know, they clock in at four to six pages right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like that still gives you space to write some decent lore about them. And then you get some heritages, like four or so, and then you get feats. And if you're real lucky, you'll get a, even get a level 17 feet in the first appearance of the arc of the ancestry, right? Like it's what, whatever fits. Mm -hmm. Uh, when it comes to the dragon ancestry, it's going to be a lot more than that because uh, there are 40 heritages now as during the middle of one of these interviews, it went up from 39 to 40 <laughs> uh, mid-interview. And so with 40 heritages and a whole bunch of dragons, basically all the types of true dragons that have ever existed in Pathfinder 2nd or 1st edition, plus one new one that will be in the Indigo Isles Adventure um, or at least if that's not true, then it'll be 39 and not 40. <laughs> but I, but it sounds like it's going to be 40. And it's not only going to be that, but it's going to have archetypes. Because you said everyone likes archetypes. And this is a bit of rules tech that I came up with one night, like a few months after Pathfinder 1st Edition came out. And we talked before about how expensive art is. I've been wanting to make this dragon ancestry since then, just even on my own. But I couldn't figure out a way that I could afford the art. But Steven can so that he, uh, when we finished Battle Zoo Bestiary and he's like, he's telling me some plans of things he wanted to do next. And I said, that's cool. Uh, you know what else I want to do next is a dragon. Maybe we can do that at some point. He was like, at some point we could just put this on the same <laughs> Kickstarter with everything else. Um, and so, uh, that is how it got on there. And it's just, it's a passion project. It uses this idea I came up with that. We, uh, I would enhance the ancestry with archetypes that include class feats in them. So that way, because as you may know, um, ancestries were designed 
to be a lower impact to your character than your class by a fairly significant amount. Big yeah. enough that you're really going to notice them, but we wouldn't, like, make a feat that was called, like, Elf Frenzy that was, like, <laughs> a, a two-action two elf feat where you attack with your sword three times or something like that. Because then, right, your fighter, your barbarian, and your ranger are all using Elf Frenzy. And it's like, well, what class are you? I can't even tell. It's, I just know you're an elf. It's the problem all over again where everyone starts just playing that. And it's not even, I'm not even saying that would make the elf the only thing you could play. I'm just saying that once you played an elf, if there was an elf frenzy that was like a really good action. And I, the what I just named, like actually ranger and fighter have some things that <laughs> might have it beat, have it beat, right? But if I did create something that was on the level of class feats to the point that that's what you're doing, then you've diluted your class because you're just doing the ancestry feat. So we, we kind of, you know, when, when Pathfinder was created, like the intent was for ancestry to do a strong supporting role with stuff that you really cared about, but that still that would mean that it was more replayable because each class still felt distinct. You felt more more like a fighter, like an elf fighter and a human fighter felt more like each other than like an an, an elf fighter versus an elf rogue or swashbuckler, right? Mm -hmm. But with with dragons. That's kind of like the exception. And there could be other exceptions, right? But it's it's kind of an exception because when you're playing a dragon, you kind of want to get a lot of dragon abilities and you're willing to be okay with the fact that it may you may make your character more similar to other people who are playing dragons and less similar to other people who are playing fighters because it's a dragon fighter. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the class archetype um, or not class archetype, because class archetypes can only work for one class. That's where the archetypes that use class fates came in to the idea. So that's a way to pay with the type of resource that we've created in Pathfinder 2nd Edition to use, um, to give you those higher profile type abilities, class feats. And it, there are none right now that I know of that are, um, Ancestry exclusive, mm -hmm. and that's basically the idea. It's just some ancestry exclusive archetypes that have class feeds. They, I mean, archetypes could have skill feeds. I'm not done writing it. Maybe they will. <laughs> right now, I don't know anything that I necessarily need to get into a skill feed, though, because um, mostly I'm thinking of big ticket abilities that would not fit well in an ancestry feed or would be a little late in an ancestry feed and could be earlier in a class feed. So that you can get your dragon stuff. Maybe it could be in both places where it's there's an ancestry feat that's a certain level and a class feat that's like, oh, you get this ancestry feat earlier with this extra benefit or something like that. Yeah. So will these work with the versatile heritages that already exist, like uh, Asimar and uh, uh, Tiefling? They will work at least as well as Leshies do. <laughs> in, in in that, right, if you don't pick Gourd Leshy or Leaf Leshy, right, which are the normal Leshy heritages, then you've kind of sort of abstained from an important decision about what kind of Leshy you are. But you can be a Tiefling Leshy or a Changeling Leshy or an Asimar Leshy. You just kind of have to be like, yeah, and it's kind of a Leaf-like form, but I didn't take the Leaf Leshy heritage, right? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So similarly... Instead of taking blue dragon or black dragon, if you take tiefling, uh, you could. Like it works mechanically. You'll just have to be like, yeah, and you know, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of also blue is my color, but I don't <laughs> have I don't have access to some of the blue dragon feats and abilities because of my tiefling blood, and I have these other tiefling feats that I can take. Gotcha. So, um, and w that also could cause you some things uh, because of that. I'm. 
currently have plans to write in that, like, if there's a feat or feature that's really, really key, like, what will your breath weapon be that you have to work with your GM about deciding what, the like, since you didn't pick any of the heritages that are in there, what the base dragon was that was going with your first tall heritage, basically. Gotcha. So what can we expect from this Kickstarter outside of the books? Uh, what stretch goals uh, are we going to be able to work towards to see this become a fully realized project? Ah, well, there are three books, as I said before. And when it comes to the stretch goals... We are adding not a ton of extra features that will add a lot to the shipping. And what I mean by that is we're not adding like plushies or, I don't know, like big bulky dice sets. Or we we might be adding dice, but we're not adding like you know, wooden dice holders, right. things like that. Instead, we're going to be putting in cool vinyl stickers where we have stylized versions of some of the more popular monsters done in a very cartoony form. These will be very fun stickers of lots of the monsters that you can just put on anything because they're vinyl. And at the higher tier, we're doing monster pins. And a lot of people seem to want these. And we're going to be doing pins, same artist, same style, and you can get different pins. So those are kind of the main extras in addition to the books that we're going to be putting out. We're also going to have like digital assets. Everyone's asked about that. We are giving out digital assets to all Kickstarters. So you'll be able to get digital assets automatically for the books. Later, we're going to also have VTT access, so you'll be able to get it right now. We're working with Foundry and Roll20, so eventually that will come to the Kickstarter. That will probably be an add-on because not everyone needs that. And the other thing we're looking at is even working with PathBuilder as they are one of the more popular yes, I love systems out there that people are using. Yes, and we're going to be adding the new Ancestries and backgrounds and heritages into PathBuilder. We're talking to him right now about that. So you'll be able to use that in that system. So those are some of it. Now, as for the actual stretch goals, right now we're looking at additional stickers because we can just keep adding stickers. And again, the main goal is to try to add fun to it without making it too expensive, especially with shipping, because right now the world has gone insane <laughs> and shipping has gone up. Oh, about a... About twelve hundred percent, I think, at the time of the recording, it is it is insane what shipping has become. So I'm trying to keep the shipping down. So you're literally just paying for books, and you know, throwing in a sticker sheet or or a uh, you know a pin or two is not going to add very much, if anything, to your shipping costs. So that's that's what I'm very careful of. But at the main goals, we are adding more ancestries. So we will continuously add more ancestries, and those would be things I presume that mm, Mark would probably write, unless they're Leshies, in which case Linda will probably write them. And one of the new ancestries that we're looking at is right now we are adding new monsters to the Adventure Path, the Treasure of the Indigo Isles, and Patrick came up with these Orpork, which are basically kind of like pig <laughs> people, if you will. Um, you know, they're they they look you know they yeah very similar and uh, they would be perfect for an ancestry <laughs> so that would be the next one and then there's another one called the Chikori. they're really neat they're underwater and they're sexless and they're made out of Ooh. coral and that one would also be really interesting they actually since they don't have gender they actually sort of kind of have a gender but they use colors and their interests instead of gender. So they're a whole new concept 
of mon- of ancestry as well. So that would also be a stretch goal because as you heard, <laughs> an ancestry is it's pretty expensive in terms of time and effort because it's about you know sixty five hundred seven thousand words when yeah. Mark writes it. And then which, you got to put together way, a lot of art. That is longer than the amount I quoted you for before. That's because I feel like the four to six page ancestries that um, that we kind of have done in the past, like that was fine when you have this giant core rulebook and you're trying to fit everything that you can into that core rulebook without making it a thousand pages long. But I think that now that it's been so many years into the game and right, all the core ancestries have not just those four pages in the core rulebook, but they have Lost Omens character guide and they have expansions. Um, I think that a new ancestry when it comes out needs eight to 10 pages to really show its stuff. And so, yeah, like, like Steven said, I am hoping to give that much love and attention to any new ancestry that isn't the dragons and the dragons are going to get Way more than that, because it's got 40 dragons in there. Yeah. So we're looking to try to make uh, bigger, better versions of these books, rather than a lot of clunky swag. Yeah, definitely. We're just literally using them as stretch goals. Because, you know, we have... Right now there's three new ancestries. The Gamayan... Well, actually, the Gamayan is a new ancestry. The Gatsugori is a new heritage, because they are sprites and fae. And the uh, Wildfire Leshy is also a new heritage because we're just going to use the Leshy. And Linda is writing that one. So Mark's not good doing <laughs> all of them, but Linda is Lady Leshy. So she has to do that one. And she's very She is known as the Over Leshy online <laughs> due, to, due to her creation of, like, what is it? Like, uh, the plurality of Leshies that were in Pathfinder First Edition Bestiaries plus the Vine Leshy race in Pathfinder First Edition, the Leshy Ancestry in Pathfinder Second Edition, and the Leshy Ancestry expansion in Lost Dawn's Ancestry Guide. So she's written a lot, like like more most of all of the playable Leshy stuff. Uh, she's also in um, like writing heritages for Leshies. In uh, that botanical bestiary you mentioned at the beginning of this. Nice. (laughs) So I did hear from a pirate parrot person that there will be a uh, an early bird pledge. Yes. Yes. Anyone who pledges in the first 48 hours will get this very, very cool monster hunter dice bag. We're calling it. It's really cool. It's basically a tube of leather. That is, I'm looking at it, it's maybe 10 inches long, and it looks like, you know, just this like nice tube. It's maybe an inch and a half It looks kind of like a scroll case or something where where you would... Where you would keep, like, either a magic scroll or a treasure map to some kind of hidden pirate treasure or something inside of it, but you it's actually where you keep your dice and turns into a, like, what is it, a mat to roll your dice on? Yeah, yeah, you unzip it, and inside is a zipper. And you can store two sets of dice, and then it lays flat, and then you have a surface to roll your dice on. And everyone in the first 48 hours gets this for free, as long (laughs) as you buy something physical, that is. And it's really cool. I've never seen this before. 
And, you know, we'll probably put a, like a, you know, Battles of Bestiary logo or yeah. something on there. But right now it's, uh, it's real leather and it's, it's really neat. I actually have a whole bunch of them and everyone walks up to me in my office like, <laughs> what is that? And then they start playing with it because it's fun. Even if you, you know, just even using it as a little weapon, I'm like using it right now. You can hear the dice yeah. like rattling around in it. So. Well, I'm glad that I got the uh, notification for when the Kickstarter launch, if you can get in on that. So now we have a couple of questions that I fielded from, uh, hopefully, uh, future uh, backers to the Kickstarter. Uh, these were taken from my Twitter at RuleLord2E, as well as from the Pathfinder2E subreddit, which is an awesome community that I think everybody should join. First question comes from Jester OC. How is the new shield system balanced with the old, or the Paizo, shield system. Can they run together or is the new system strictly more powerful than the original system? Oh boy, you just opened up a can of worms because Mark is not going <laughs> to stop talking about this. Go, go, Mark, no, go. No, he's I've so got, proud of I've this. Got a, I've he, got a he's concise so, answer. He's so I've, proud of the shield system. I've got a concise system. answer, which is, you'll be fine. Because mo- a lot of, I, I see why why you're worried, Jester OC. Uh, a lot of people have proposed changes to the shield system online that would be just unbalancedly superior. Things like, oh, well, let's make a sturdy rune that we can just put on all the other types of shields so they're just as sturdy as the sturdy shields and do the thing that they do. That is not what this does. Instead, it basically deconstructs a progression for shields that can get your shields somewhere good, on its own, and that's what you get for refining a shield. And then you can imbue a property in your shield, which could be sturdy, and if it is, well, then you get exactly the same statistics as a sturdy shield. Except it's granular, so you don't have gap levels. And uh, if you don't, and you pick a cool thing that is not sturdy, then you still get a shield that's not going to explode immediately when it gets hit, but it will also have some cool special ability. And um, what this does prevent is creating shields that are in like, have some absurdly powerful ability that does not involve blocking and are intended not to be great at blocking to kind of compensate that. But uh, that's okay. You can always use the hybrid system and buy one of those um, separately if you want. Dr. Debbie Brian Lane uh, Slyly asks, when does the next contest open? And also, what do you feel is unexplored or underexplored space in monster design for second edition? So the next contest we're looking to do is 2022, because uh, we just don't really have enough time. And then with COVID and a million other reasons, I didn't do another contest this year. We're mostly concentrating on getting the books out, getting the word out so that next contest is even better. So look for the next contest at rpgsuperstar.com in 2022. We're probably going to do Monsters again, because <laughs> why not? And to be honest, one of the issues with doing something more siloed, like you know, a specific item or an archetype or an ancestry, it's hard. Those are very hard concepts, but everyone can design and do Monsters Most people start out doing monsters. Games are really built around monsters, so there's no shortage of monsters. In terms of unexplored monster types, there's a few I can think of. Uh, The Troop Mm -hmm. is brand new, 
And that was in uh, the third bestiary. And I actually really like the troop concept because then you can act like a hero and just like slaughter huge groups yeah. of monsters when it's really just one. And believe it or not, the um, aquatic ambush is an ability you never see it ever, but it's quite good. And I actually wrote it in one of my monsters for Ron Lundin. And he wrote back and he was like, oh my God, I was so impressed that you put that in. No one uses it and you put it into the monster. I am so happy. And that was the Bendy monster that came out in, I believe that was Agents of Edgewatch. I wrote that monster. So there you go. Deadly D8, uh, MacArthur, friend of the podcast, asked, when designing creatures, what element typically jumps out to you first and how do you design around that? Designing monsters. Hmm. Well, the biggest thing about a monster is that they have to be able to tell a story very quickly. Now, most monsters only last three to five rounds. So you need to be able to tell a story of like what the monster is like mm. very quickly. So it's a combination of what it looks like, what its special abilities are, how it behaves, and then even its attacks. Like one of the nice things, and I always find is kind of cool in Pathfinder, is that the names of the attacks are anything you want. Like, my favorite attack is the gelatinous cube. People are like, oh, what's the name of the attack, a gelatinous cube? But like, oh, it's a tentacle. Face. I'm like, no, no, no. It's it's cube face. face. <laughs> cube face. I'm like, cube face? You see? I, re I remembered that because that is how original it was. That makes an interesting monster. Because you're not going to remember tentacle. Yeah. Everyone has a tentacle, but only, only a gelatinous cube has cube <laughs> face. So that, um, that's cool. Special abilities, things the monster does, you know, anything memorable. And that's also, but it's a trick because you got to make it very easy for the GM to run a monster with a lot of abilities. And you have to make it easy for the PCs to figure out what it is and then to counter it with a round or two so they don't get slaughtered. So, you know, writing a really good monster is very hard. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a very delicate process, but you know, it's, it's sort of the whole kit and caboodle and just sort of putting it all together and, you know, just being able to see, a monster and think about well what what does this monster do how does it survive you know what is it you know what does it attack with what type of abilities does it have you know and then even being able to build a whole society out of it and in fact that was a big part of the the winners of the battle zoo bestiary is the platinum and the grand prize they didn't just get one monster they get a they got a whole family of monsters so, for example, the Salt Stalker, these are these monsters that kill you by basically taking Ooh. salt out of your body and making you dehydrate to death, which is, again, that even Patrick Rennie was like, okay, <laughs> I've never seen that before. That is unique and something you will not forget, like when you get attacked and you start to dehydrate to death quickly. And then we made a whole family of them. You know, you were able to make uh, basically different types of attackers. They're almost like the Zerg in a way from Star uh, Starcraft. Uh, yeah. Yes, from Starcraft. And, you know, there's like a flying one. There's sort of the fire breathing one. There's sort of the attacker. And then there's the big mother mama one. So, you know, that that's an example of like the platinum ones where we were very e It was very easy for us to come up with a whole family of monsters based on just one monster. 
So I know it's a long answer, but you can see it's actually a lot more complex than just, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they breathe fire. But, yeah, Steve, no, Steven it's, it's really Steve. covered the the entirety of what you're looking for. I'll try to condense um, into a few tips of things to do to try to hit the notes that he said. So one of them is avoid abilities that nobody can see. That goes towards what he was saying about make sure the PCs can see it and see the story. So if you're making an ability that's like, well, this monster gets a plus one to hit and damage against humans, that there's there's not that much point to that. Mm-hmm. Maybe just give it a plus one to hit and damage and be and come up with put that else. bake it into its stats. Come up with an actual a visible ability and come up with enough abilities that you're going to be able to show and tell a story, but not so many that the GM is like, well. I have seven two-action abilities that this monster can use, and on its turn, it obviously can only use one of those. Yeah. And that very much applies to spell, innate spells. Most Pathfinder First Edition monsters have too many spell-like abilities. And I'm saying most, even though not all of them even have any spell-like abilities. And so when you're making a monster in Pathfinder Second Edition, if you know a lot of First Edition monsters, you try to dial that back, think about which of those spells are cool in a fight and a big thing you're definitely going to use or very important to the story outside of combat, just keep those. You don't need to have 40 different spells that are on there if they're not important to the monster's theme and story. So basically get enough on there that it can tell a story, that there's something cool and memorable, and then condense down uh, only things that spark joy uh, when it comes to the abilities until you have something the gym can run and not be like, well, these are competing with each other. Do I really want to grab and constrict it, or should I trample? Uh, they all use my actions in a different way. Uh, Luminous Mage asks, is there going to be an option for the dragon to become larger later? There sure will, but you won't have to if you'd rather stay smaller. Atkin Music asks, he'd like to hear more about how the dragon ancestry in- interacts with its archetype, and if the system can be applied to different monsters. Well, um, so it's going to be an archetype that requires you to be a dragon, and this absolutely could be applied to different monsters. When I came up with this idea, the essential pitch was that the line would be like something like advanced ancestries, and I could do anything with it, right? It could be like, what's what's your favorite monster in, in Bestiary 1? My favorite? Yeah, what is it? Mm. This <laughs> cube. Uh, I yeah. don't know all of them by heart. I can tell you my favorite monster is uh, the uh, Groot Slang from the latest Mwangi Expanse. Okay. Well, um, so when it comes to a Groot Slang in the latest Mwangi Expanse, that, that one would probably not um, be uh, an easy ancestry, <laughs> given that it is um, gargantuan, chaotic, evil... Um, giant like elephant monster (laughs) but um the basic idea was that this same rules tech could apply to a Groot slang or other types of monsters and so i could do something where like dragons because everyone knows dragons are like people's favorite one um could be a first one and then like if i was doing this myself i could make more for other things that are in the best year if people liked it enough. But it was also just very risky even to do it at all. So, yes, it definitely could be applied. But that being said, if your question was, can I literally just take this dragon archetype 
not change it and just now I'm I've covered other monsters. The answer is no because it will be very specific to dragons. Mm. But the the idea of having an archetype is something that could be applied by a game designer or aspiring game designer or even a GM who likes homebrewing. Like I, I like you said, you love third party products. I love them too, <laughs> and I love. I love modding games. That's what I loved about games before I I joined Paizo as a fan who just liked modding my game a lot. And so I tried to work when I was working on Pathfinder 2nd Edition to make the game easier to mod and to get into without having to super understand a huge number of different parts that are going to like interlace with each other, kind of make it a little more modular. Mm-hmm. And I think that in that sense... Uh, the answer to the question is that, yes, by looking at the way that it works with dragons, you t- might be able to use Pathfinder 2nd Edition's modular design to try to figure it out for some other ancestry. And I certainly might if I wanted to make other ancestry. I should have said the... Maybe maybe not a Groot slang. I should have said the bunyip. I just remembered it. I love the bunyip. Oh, yeah, the bunyip. <laughs> I actually, I'm actually changing my answer, too. My answer is actually... The Gibbering Mouther. That is by far my favorite monster. Also, by far the hardest monster to run. Uh, the Pathfinder First Edition version of the Gibbering Mouther was near impossible because it had so many abilities. The Pathfinder 2 is definitely up there. It's probably one of the tougher, more complex monsters to run. But damn, it it can just mess you up in so many it's, ways. It's not Love too it. bad in 2nd Edition, but it is complicated for a 5th level monster. But yeah, you could have a Bunyip or a, a Gibbering Mouther using this this kind of situation. I mean, you might even be able to do a Bunyip without needing to have uh, a, an archetype based on it, because your main thing is Roar, Shift Form, like Blood Frenzy, um, Aquatic Opportunity, and Blood Scent. You could probably get that in there. Maybe Blood Frenzy is a little more iffy like that that's sort of the type of thing you might want to do because of the fact that it literally throws you into a frenzy which is kind of like you know classy ish but um yeah, yeah. so it, it could be done so i have uh two questions two different people asking questions i think kind of go well uh together so one is asking, uh, this is Karma Gator. What are the general categories of powers we can imbue into weapons and armor? We've heard of firing cold, but is there anything that's surprising? Like, uh, we've heard about an aberration bane. And then, uh, Henry Prince asks, what are the most interesting monster abilities or attacks? Is there something really cool we haven't seen before? And something like with high AC or lo- and low HP, um, and is there anything that's an exception to the regular monster building formula? Well, I I can talk about the special abilities, Stephen. While you try to try, yeah, you can talk about yeah, you you can talk about try to find some monsters that <laughs> might meet meet those requirements because that could be trickier. Sure, <laughs> that's gonna be. I know that's gonna. I'm gonna quickly go scan all yeah. the monsters, but you can talk about so properties. a lot of the imbued properties are definitely like very weapony because people love weapons with different magical abilities so there are there's acid for instance is on there and that's not technically a um an elemental one but it's like an an energy energy, type i guess um and each of those has three paths you can use to imbue it because not every fire weapon needs to be the same not every acid weapon needs to be the same so you could have the magic path for acid, where you're casting acid spells, 
out of your weapon. You could have the might path where you do a bunch of acid damage, or you could have the technique path where you're doing persistent acid damage and eating away at their stuff and uh, potentially lo- like corroding their resistances down and things like that, mm. maybe even draining them uh, at 20th level. Um, so the, the, that technique is like sort of a more like doing weird condition stuff. And since you can have three properties on your weapon, you could pick acid every time if you want. Mega acid sword or something. The most acidic sword (laughs) ever created. And Bane is in there too. Uh, Bane does not have, uh, all three paths because of the fact that there is not a magic path. They're not really like a good set of Bane spells. In the game, but it does have a might and a technique path. What might is like, I am really good at, at damaging this type of creature, and technique is like, I'm really good at, at debilitating this type of creature. There's aligned properties. There's like charisma for skill items. There's um, there's uh, energy resistant is one for armor or shields, for example. Mm-hmm. So um, fortification for armor. I, I already said sturdy is one for shields. Sensory is one for perception items that can give you um, additional senses. And um, spell is one for skill items that can give you a spell. So that can be a wand and a skill item almost all in one for you. I mean, you can't <laughs> overcharge it, but that's fine. And the funniest one, just to um, to reinforce that Steven really does like random stuff, is Wild which is a weapon imbued property for where you, you know, you do it just like, I, I can't be bothered to get enough fire parts for this weapon. I, I don't fight that many fire monsters. What if I just throw in everything <laughs> onto the weapon? It has no requirements. It's just, it's just a little bit worse than other weapon properties. It only has a bite path and you don't know what type of damage you're going to do before you deal it. You have to roll a D6 and find out what it's going to be. And it does as much damage as another bite path. It doesn't quite have um, all the bells and whistles because also it has lower requirements and it's random. Um, so it's the, the description is sometimes you just can't find enough parts of the same type mm-hmm. to properly imbue your weapon, but you still want to imbue it with something from that desperation and the haphazard imbuing of wildly different parts. A wild imbued property is born inconsistent and lacking a few of the benefits of other imbued properties. So, that's kind of what you're getting at. Oh, there's winged for armor. There's some things in there. What did you find, Steven, in terms of, like, really weird monsters that, that don't follow your expectations? Well, one of the nice things about this is I realized about a third of the monsters probably <laughs> fall under that category because there's no shortage. I was like, oh, wow, I forgot. These are really creative monsters. Like, people really, really went outside the box. So I'm just going to go alphabetically okay. and give you a whole bunch. Um, the Butcher Booth is a mimic the size of a building (laughs) so you literally like oh what's that cool building there and you walk in and then uh you start getting eaten alive because it is a it is a mimic and it is size gargantuan or even larger and they make themselves look like buildings (laughs) and then you just walk in and they start eating you so that that's that's fun there's a chamber ooze which is an ooze that is inside of a like a room in the dungeon but it actually is on all the walls and the ceiling and it's so thin it's transparent so it's like the absolute reverse of a gelatinous cube so instead of you walking into it it like coats the whole room and then you walk in and then it like it like eats you it snaps shuts and like 
pounces on you, and so this invisible ooze is like in the entire room, which is fun. Jeez. Yeah, I know. You have uh, the Mechanical Maitre D. They're constructed companions. This is a platinum, and I love this guy. This is not even a monster. They're like a butler, and they have this cool ability called Prepare and Serve, where it's a two-action ability, and they create a dish and give it to someone within 15 feet, and you either regain hit points or you get a plus one to your bonus attacks or perception or saving throws, oh, nice. skill checks. You can carry additional bulk or you can move faster. So basically, they quickly whip a meal for you and give it to you, and then you eat it wow. and you get abilities. Like, I, I know, I've never seen that before. So it's not even really a monster. It's kind of like literally yeah. a support monster. And they wrote two more. On top of that, I'll just, the other one is called the Bespoke Bodyguard. They're awesome. They're gigantic, huge bodyguards. And inside of them, they have an extra dimensional porter. They actually have a bag of holding type two inside their chest. And what they do is that if you're being, if the person they're guarding is getting beaten up, they (laughs) grab you and throw you into their bag of holding in their chest. And then they protect you. And then they beat up the bad guys. I told you, there's a lot, and I'm just like, this is like tip of the iceberg. There's, there's, there's a lot in here. <laughs> Let me see. I'll give like one or two more because I get to keep going. But that one, that yeah. one is like. Awesome. I'm just salivating as a GM over all these different options. I, I, I can't wait to throw these at players. Hieroglyphic scorpion. They're really neat. They are two dimensional pictographs on the wall, and they are. They basically guard tombs. So you're like, oh, look at that cool, like a scorpion. And then, you know, if you get too close, they literally come to life. They come out of the wall, become three dimensional and attack you. So they're literally artwork that starts, Mm -hmm. you know, like on the wall. Now, here's the cool part. If you run away, they go back into the wall and then can follow you by just running on the wall in two dimensions. It's yeah, I told you, like there's really cool <laughs> stuff in here. Like and actually I'll start with the, the the last one. There's so many, but the Hearth Hound, I love this one. Again, it's not really a lot of these aren't even necessarily monsters. The Hearth Hound is a spirit of a trusty hound that guarded a family and has become so close with the family that they come back to life as an incorporeal beast spirit undead. And they guard the family. They will, you know, basically they sit in front of the hearth and they're they're just a dog. And all they do is guard the family or the people who live there. And because they're incorporeal and dead spirits, they, they can come back. They rejuvenate if they're destroyed after a few days. And in fact, it takes a year for the family to abandon the house for the spirit to dissipate. So they're they're just like gentle guardians wow so there's a lot in here and it's not all just monsters it's you know things like that like that you can just add you know that's what i meant by like story elements like it's like wow that's really cool like you can think of putting that just in like a pub you know it's like oh yeah that's like the 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 hound that just guards it it's not even a monster it just adds flavor (laughs) but it is a monster it has stats it has abilities but you can just put it anywhere it's great yeah there's a ton well uh karmagator ends off by saying, by the way, thanks to everyone working on the Battle Zoo Bestiary series. I hope these books will be successful because I can't wait for what else you can do. 
it sounds like there's a lot of cool stuff happening. So what comes next for the Battle Zoo Bestiary and where can we find more of your individual work? So the Battle Zoo line will become something. So people are like, well, you have Battle Zoo Bestiary, you have Battle Zoo Ancestries, Battle Zoo Adventures. They're all linked to each other, by the way. Like in the adventure, you're going to find all the monsters, well, not all the monsters, but all the monsters in the adventure are either going to be written specifically for the adventure or come from mm. the Bazoo Bestiary. So that's uh, that's how that's going to be integrated. And we're, of course, going to put some dragons, at least as NPCs, in the adventure. So all three will connect to each other. And Dragon Part System is going to be there. There is another book that Mark and I have talked about when this is all over that we're going to be working on that will bring Battlezoo to life and people will finally figure out what the heck Battlezoo <laughs> means. You can probably guess it has something to do with battling or and lots of things. Hence the word battle zoo. We'll find out. But he and I have been talking about it for a while now, but we got a lot of work to finish up on this. So that will be our next year project. And uh, just more time for us to brainstorm. But that will be coming up hopefully next year. Hopefully this is a big success. Everyone has fun. Everyone enjoys the content. Then we can do this again. We can run another contest. Probably be another monsters. Maybe, you know, we might do a theme or some loose theme. Right now it's just all over the place. Who knows? We're still figuring it out. And we'll come up with another system of some sort, I'm sure. You can never mm -hmm. come up with enough of these systems. Definitely monster related. And you'll find out. Otherwise, you can find the Kickstarter at kickstarter.rollforcombat.com. It goes live August 31st. You'll be able to buy all these as PDFs. If you, you know, just want the content, you'll be able to buy them, of course, as books. There's also a special oh, edition yes. version, which will be available only through the Kickstarter that has a lot of cool things. We're just adding lots, like we're adding bookmarks and we're adding custom end pages and gold leaf on the sides. And it is a beautiful custom cover. We're probably going to add some gold oh, leaf to gosh. the cover. We're just adding a lot. We're like, yeah, we're going to add a lot of cool things to it. I mean, the content of the insides. The same, but, you know, we're just making it a fun edition for I'm everyone. I'm for special edition books, so I am so happy to hear about that. Well, at the highest tier, you can actually get both. Ooh. So people feel like they're left out. And I didn't really raise the price that much. You just kind of get it for free. So you'll be able to get the regular bestiary, the special edition bestiary, plus the dragon book, plus the adventure path, which is really three adventures, but yeah. we're putting it in one book. And... You know, it, it's it's going to be like jam packed. You know, it's it's it couldn't be run separately like you would a uh, mm -hmm. three adventure path. Like you could run the third book by itself if you wanted to. You could just jump in at seventh level and just assume the first two books happened. But you know, it will have, as I said, eighteen plus monsters. It's going to have a whole gazetteer on the Indigo Isles. There's the main town of Rumplank on Goldcrop Island. We're going to have a whole gazetteer on that. There's going to be multiple ancestries. There's going to be a player's guide. You know, we're going full. We're going full <laughs> Paizo adventure awesome. path on this thing. And there's only and there's only three, so you can finish it. You know, in your lifetime. So there. You well, go. I'm I'm personally uh, adding my hat to the ring. Uh, I was listening to your no direction version of this interview. By the way, uh, there are at least three other interviews to find out more information about the Battle Zoo Bestiary from how it's played, how it's played, no net ones, and uh, no direction. Uh, and in the no direction one, he mentioned. Uh, he was hoping for a uh, 
Bowzu Bestiary Ponset, and I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed for that too. There's also an Arcane Mark interview uh, that came before. Oh, oh that's right. <laughs> that's right. If someone actually put it into a YouTube channel, it would be easy to link <laughs> that's to. That's true. Someday we will put it on the YouTube <laughs> channel. Who knows? So, uh, Mark, uh, where can we find uh, more of your stuff uh, after this? Well, I mean, you can find a lot of the things that I'm working on um, that are not in the Battle Zoo line at Paizo. Right. Mm-hmm. And for, for Battle Zoo, you can keep paying attention to Battle Zoo, um, stuff back and forth. But if you just kind of want to hang out and talk with me or, or watch, uh, me and, um, the digital, uh, adventures development manager, Linda Zias Palmer, uh, sort of talk about RPG topics, we've got an Arcane Mark, uh, stream that's on Twitch and then occasionally on YouTube. That uh, is twitch.tv slash arcane mark. And we've got a discord tiny.cc slash arcane mark. That's like um, the typical tiny URL, but arcane mark. And that's where I hang out to talk to people in terms of seeing me. But yeah, for my products, I mean, right? Um, I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to getting their secrets of magic that <laughs> has me, me and Logan on the cover, or maybe their guns and gears with. Me and Mike on the cover, or wherever you're, whatever you're looking for. Um, I just got my notification that it's on things. the way. Oh, that's awesome! That means that um, as soon as you get charged, you're gonna get your PDF. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, it has been such a pleasure talking to you guys. I am even more excited for the Battle Zoo Bestiary now that it's coming out. So, Rule Lord Nation, make sure that you check out the Battle Zoo Bestiary on Kickstarter. Uh, support it however you feel is possible. This sounds like a product that you are not going to want to miss. So, Stephen, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for interviewing us. Yes, thank you for having us. And until next session... Don't let the rules rule you. Unless you really want them to. Yeah, I mean, it's fine <laughs> if you want them to. I love math and rules. <laughs>